Last Sunday, we looked at the second part of Elihu's speech in Job 33, where Elihu sought to correct Job's bad thinking concerning God's silence. Job insisted that God was no longer speaking to him, that the Almighty was being deliberately quiet toward him. Uh, we saw that in Job 10.2, 11.5, 34.29. It's a reoccurring theme in the book of Job. Job saying God is silent. And Elihu laid out an incredible argument. God is not silent. Elihu says that, that God speaks through dreams and visions of the night, through pain and suffering, through messengers, angelic and human. The problem wasn't with God. The problem was with Job. If God was indeed speaking to Job through the mediums Elihu mentioned, it was Job's complaining and self-righteous boasting that made it pretty much impossible for him to hear God's voice or to even discern what God was trying to teach Job through that difficult experience. Another bad thought from Job, not just that God was silent, but another bad thought from Job had to do with God being unjust, that God being unjust. The battered patriarch began to see himself as, as a victim of divine injustice. He didn't start that way early on in the suffering, but after arguing with those friends over the course of many weeks, and we, we saw through all of the debate and, and, and argument, he just developed this attitude that I'm a victim and that God is treating me unfairly. God is unjust. As a righteous man, because we know that Job chapter 1 and chapter 2 established the fact that he was righteous and, and sort of blameless, blameless in these things, as a, a righteous man, Job believed he had certain inalienable rights. You know, the righteous people of God, they have particular rights. He believed this. He had the right to enjoy a, a good and prosperous life with lots of wealth, family, and health. He believed that. He believed that he had the right to hear God speak. He, he believed he had the right to be heard by God, that if he prays to God, that, that, he has, that he has the right for God to listen to him and to even respond. Uh, he believed uh, as a righteous man he had the right to a fair trial in God's court if he were to secure something like that. Hey, if I could just appear before God, I have the right to argue my case. We know that he thought he had this right because he argued this a lot. He even believed he had the right to be vindicated by God and so on and so forth. But according to Job... God had unjustly taken away all these rights and intentionally embittered his soul. This is exactly what he said in Job 27, verse 2. So another line of bad thinking from Job is that God is unjust. He doesn't treat people justly at times. In the next section, Elihu seeks to correct this line of bad thinking. In fact, all, every section of his speech is a correction of this, some form of bad thinking. And in this particular section, he will make clear to Job that God is never, ever unjust, that he is perfectly just and always just. Now, please take your Bibles and turn over to Job 34. We're going to tackle the whole text, which means I've got to be moving quickly. And maybe you're already there because we had it read earlier from Bruce. Thank you, Bruce, for reading those long sections. And I would say thank you to you guys for paying attention and listening. Thank you for that. I'd like to go ahead and pray before we get started. And the title of this message is very simple. God is not unjust. God is not unjust. I'm going to give you some O's today, some O's today. 
I want to pray. Father, thank you for this morning and thank you for those who are here. We pray that you open our, our ears and our minds and our hearts to the truth, that, you would, uh, that we would receive it and apply it and live it. That is going to be a work of your sovereign grace in our hearts. We pray for your sovereign grace and your work in our hearts. We pray for your power this morning. Teach us from your word. And, and most of all, yes, we, we want to be taught, but we want you we want you to be glorified. Glorify yourself through the text. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We can pick up where we left off last Sunday. Look at our first O. It's very simple. It's Elihu's opener. We see this in verses 1 to 4. I'll just tackle 1 to 4 right now. We won't break that up because it's very simple. Then, this is the very next thing that is said. Then Elihu answered and said, Hear my words, you wise men. And give ear to me, you who know. For the ear tests words as the palate tastes food. Let us choose what is right. Let us know among ourselves what is good. Stop there. An interesting thing is that uh, the opener here in 34 sounds a lot like Job in chapter 33 in verse 1. In his opener there, it sounds very similar. He is saying, hear my speech, O Job, listen to all my words back in 33. Now in 34, he says almost the exact same thing, but notice the difference. He aims it not at Job this time, but at the wise men. See the difference? You get the idea that in, in 33, he's primarily addressing Job. You get the idea in 34 that he's primarily addressing the wise men. We have to ask this question, who are the wise men? After listening to eight speeches from Job's three friends, it's hard to believe that they had wisdom. But that is precisely who he's speaking about. He is referring to Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. Elihu opens with an invitation to the wise men, the three friends, to what? Hear and test his words. And an example he gives is the mouth-tasting food, right? He says, I want you to test my words just as your palates, your mouths, test and taste food. In verse 4, he exhorts the three friends to choose what is right so that they will know what is good. This was his way of encouraging these three friends to focus on what was clear rather than on what was unclear. What was clear? What was right before their very eyes? It was Job's sin of pride and self-righteousness and terrible bad thinking. That was clear. You could see, you could hear these things, the examples in what he was doing and saying. What was unclear? Job's past sins, the wicked things he allegedly did to get himself into his suffering and predicament. What Elihu is essentially saying here is, he is saying, test and choose what is right concerning my assessment of Job's current behavior. He's saying, I want you to focus on my analysis of who he is and what he's been doing now, not on some idea of past sins. And he's saying, if I speak with accuracy and wisdom, I want you to be in agreement with me and declare it good. This is what he's saying in these first four verses. So that is his opener and some of these will move very quickly. Some of them will take more time. Number two, Elihu's observation. This we see in verses 5 and 6. We'll deal with both verses at once here. Uh, he says, For Job has said, I am in the right, 
and God has taken away my right. You see it there? What is he charging God with? Injustice. You are being unjust. For Job has said, I am in the right, and God has taken away my right. In spite of my right, I am counted a liar. My wound is incurable, though I am without transgression. What Elihu is doing here is he's basically quoting some of the things that Job has said. He's stringing together things he heard Job say. And then he's basically presenting his observation to Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. He had heard Job declare his own righteousness no less than five times. No less than five times, right? Job 9.15 and verse 20. Job 13, verse 18. Job 27, verse 6. Job 29.14. The defense of Job's righteousness is a theme in the book of Job. He has heard him talk about his rightness at least five times. He has heard Job declare that God had unjustly taken away his right. This was in a previous speech, Job 27, verse 2, that Elihu was actually quoting Job's own words here. He has heard Job declare that in spite of being right, he is now counted as a liar, Job 24, verse 25. He has heard Job declare how God had crushed and multiplied his wounds, Job 9, 17. And he has heard Job declare his purity, his innocence, his lack of transgression no less than seven times. Job 8.6, Job 9.23, and 33 verse 9. What are we learning here? We are learning that Elihu was like a digital recorder, Right? If you want to say something stupid, don't do it in front of this guy. He is recording and remembering what Job has said, declaring his rightness and all these things. He has sat and listened so closely. We could actually learn a lesson from Elihu here to become better listeners rather than big talkers. He is like a digital recorder, and and in his mind, Job sounds like a self-righteous Pharisee. Amen? He does. Now, we know that there's a context for every one of those sayings, everything that Job expressed. We get it. He's defending his character, and he really had to in some regard. But if you're just sitting there as a witness, you are thinking, wow, this guy's really into himself. And that's what Elihu was thinking as he's literally jotting down in his mind all of these expressions of just how great Job is. Now, why did Elihu bring Job's sayings, string these things together essentially, bring all these sayings and string them together, uh, and why did he bring them to the attention of the three friends here? What's the point? Why would he do this? Well, he did it to establish a pattern of thinking in Job so that he could correct that pattern of thinking by defending God's justness. Because ultimately what Elihu hears is Job is in the right, God is in the wrong. Every time Job talks about his righteousness, he's essentially, Elihu hears him saying, even though he's not saying it, but what he hears is, I'm right, God is wrong. I'm just, God is unjust. And so he's bringing this to the friend's attention to set forth a strong correction in the text. Now, someone once said, and I don't know who it was that said it, maybe you know, but it was something to the effect of, and this is probably not verbatim, but it's something like God doesn't need his people to defend him. 
right? God doesn't need his people to defend him. You know, we, we don't need to get in these tangles with people and in these debates and conversations and, and, and maybe even arguments at times. We don't need to speak up when people are defaming or blaspheming God. God is, is, is a big boy. God is a big God. He can defend himself. So there's no need for us to defend God. People say this kind of stuff, and if you think about it, it's kind of true in a way, right? God is omnipotent, all-powerful, right? All-knowing. I mean, he's, he's perfectly capable. He doesn't need human defenders, so to speak. So it's, it's, it's kind of true. But I would simply say, how can those who love God, or better yet, who are loved by God, who have tasted His goodness, who are experiencing His incredible powerful, transforming mercy and grace, you know, every day, every morning, his mercies are new every morning. How can those who know God and who are loved by God and experiencing all his goodness, how can they just sit back and be silent when wicked people profane his holy name? How is that a possibility? Well, we don't need to defend him because he can defend himself. Well, that's true. Do we condone it when someone attacks a loved one? When someone says something about our spouse or our children or a family member? Do we condone that? If you do, you're a wimp. You sit back and let them malign your spouse. You sit back and let them gossip and chatter and utter disgusting things about your children. We, we don't condone that. I'll tell you what, you say something about my wife or children, you better believe I'm going to respond. Now, I might not pull a Will Smith. I had to get that in there. Had to ha it just happened. It's fresh. I can feel the slap. I can hear the slap heard around the world. I may not pull a Will Smith. I may or may not. I hope I don't. Why? Because elders are not supposed to be pugnacious. We're not supposed to be violent or pugnacious. 1 Tim 3.3 but I guarantee there will be a response. Something is going to happen, right? We will defend our wives. We will defend our husbands. We will defend our children. We will defend people that we love. We will defend our loved ones and yet do nothing when Christ, our bridegroom, is attacked. Ha, ha, ha. You kidding me? Peter pulled out his sword from its scabbard and sliced off a man's ear, John 18, 10. It was a, a foolish move because those who live by the sword shall die by the sword, but at least he loved Jesus enough to try to defend him. Amen? At least he did something. It may have been stupid. I'm glad Will Smith didn't have a sword. Chris Rock would be one-eared bandit. I think we can learn from Elihu here. I do. I think we can learn from him. I don't think learning from Peter is the right idea here, bearing the sword. I don't think that's the right response. I don't think the Will Smith thing is the right way to handle things, and look at how he's paying for it now. But Elihu did have conviction, and he had courage, and he hears Job attacking God. That's what he thinks Job is doing, even though Job would never admit to that because he didn't think that's what he was doing. But Elihu hears that, and what does he do? He has courage, boldness, and he speaks up. And he does it in the best possible way. He gives truth in defense of God's character and justice. We can learn. We, should, we ought not sit back and let people blaspheme our God and malign Christ or take his name in vain. We ought to say something. Just don't be mean and cruel with it. 
Speak up, have courage. Be like Elihu and Peter without a sword. Third O, number three, Elihu's objection. Verses 7 to 10, we'll look at 7 through 9 first. He says, what man is like Job, who drinks up scoffing like water, who travels in the company of, uh, with evildoers and walks with wicked men? For he has said, it profits a man nothing that he should take delight in God. Stop there. Elihu objects to God's, or to Job's, pardon me, to Job's accusations against God, especially with God being unjust. That's the objection. He objects to what Job has been saying, not everything, but to a great deal of what Job has said, especially to the idea that Job is right and God is wrong. Job is just, God is unjust. He is objecting to that here. In verse 70, he quotes Eliphaz, who had called Job a man who drinks injustice like water, Job 15, 16b. Now, this isn't a verbatim quote, but it's pretty close. The meaning is the same. The point is that Job is acting like a man with an insatiable, unquenchable thirst. But it's not water that he craves. It's justice. He wants justice from God because he's suffering. He wants it more than anything else. And he thinks that God is refusing to give him justice. Therefore, God is unjust. In verse 8, Elihu compares Job to those who travel in the company of evildoers who walk with wicked men. Why did Elihu compare Job to evildoers and wicked men? Why is he doing that? Was it because of Job's past sins, the alleged transgressions Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar suggested he had done? No, that doesn't have anything to do with it. Elihu was referring to Job's current behavior, to his insatiable thirst for justice, to his unbending demand for justice, and to his accusation against God for refusing to give him justice. Elihu hears Job doing this and saying these things, and he believes that Job is treating God with contempt. What do evildoers and wicked men do? They treat God with contempt. Now, we do the exact same thing when we want something really, really badly and we beg God to give it to us, and then we accuse God when we don't get it. We do the exact same thing. That's exactly what Job was doing. I want this, I'm righteous, and I'm entitled to it, but you're not giving it to me, therefore you are unjust. Do we not do the same thing when we don't get what we want from God? We do the same thing. And really what this is, is this is just the behavior of small children, right? Vipers and diapers. They ask mom for something. Mom says no. They get mad and throw a fit. Or if they're a teenager, they curse mom behind her back, don't they? They go in the back room and... Blah, 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 blah. I remember one time my sister and my mom were arguing, and it was on 99 in the 70s, because I'm super old, and we were driving, and we had a Chevy Malibu, silver, black tops, kind of a nice car, really more of a hoopty, but we were driving down 99 in Stockton because that's where we lived, and I remember my mom and sister, I have a middle sister, Melissa, who's a few years younger than me, they were arguing, and then and my sister disagreed with my mom, and she murmured some things quietly that only us kids in the back could hear, but my mom heard it, grabbed a hairbrush out of her purse, and smashed her in the teeth. 
From that point on, Melissa was much more careful when she wanted to slander mom. She didn't learn her lesson. She kept doing it. But I remember that. I remember that. It's just so vivid. And it was one of those victorious moments for an older brother who always fought with his sisters. Yes! Hit her again! Right? You shut up and you'll get one. Okay. And, and, and this, is, this is the behavior of small children. We don't get what we want, and then we start pointing fingers, and we start railing, and we start complaining. We start, we start slandering. We start doubting. We, 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 we aim our, 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 um, our, our, our animosity or frustration at God, and why would you withhold this? It's something that I need. Am I not right with you? And, you know, it's just a, it's a, it's a tantrum is essentially what Job is doing, and, and it's what we do. This is not the behavior of a mature Christian who understands. Now, I, I need to say this really slowly and carefully because I want you to hear me. This kind of tantrum, childlike behavior, this is not the behavior of a mature Christian who understands that whatever God gives is good and whatever he withholds is equally good. Did you hear me? Do we not understand that whatever it is that he withholds is just as good as that which he gives? If not better in some scenarios, the mature Christian understands this and says, I'm perfectly fine with not receiving that because he is out for my good, just as he is when he gives me the good things or the things that I think I need. There is the difference. There is the difference and yet, evildoers and wicked men, what do they do? They only care about themselves. What do selfish little children do? They only care about themselves. What do immature Christians do? They only care about themselves. Therefore, they get upset with God when they don't get what they think they deserve. When we exhibit self-centeredness and get upset with God when we don't get what we want, we are essentially no longer in the company of the righteous, so to speak. We are in the company of evildoers and wicked men, and that's Elihu's point. You've deviated from the path of righteousness, Job, with these strong demands and these accusations against God, and you're acting just like the wicked. It's as if you stepped off the narrow path onto 99, the broad road to destruction. In verse 9, Elihu uses Job's own illustration against him. This is why you've got to be careful with what you say, because what you say might be held against you in a court of law. Job 21, verses 14 to 15, the battered patriarch had described the attitude of the wicked toward God. He said, they say to God, depart from us. We do not desire the knowledge of your ways. What is the Almighty that we should serve him? And what profit do we get if we pray to him? Now, ultimately, what he's saying here is the wicked, you know, they basically have all that they want in life. And so they see no value in knowing God's ways Serving him is therefore unprofitable and unnecessary, and so is praying to him. Elihu is suggesting that the, the same evil attitude is now present in the one who gave this illustration in Job. And Elihu was right. Elihu was right. When Job touted his righteousness and accused God of being unjust, he sounded like the wicked in Elihu's ears. It was as if Job was saying, What's the point in being righteous if God is not going to uphold my rights? What's the point in being blameless if God is not going to bless me with wealth, family, and health? He took all those things away. What's the point in even being a blameless man? It's a kind of fatalism, right? 
What's the point in being innocent if God is not going to inoculate me against illness and injury and injustice? It profits a man nothing that he should take delight in God. This is an attitude that Elihu sees in Job. What's the point in being right with God if he's just going to take away my rights? It's fatalism. That's what's developed in the battered patriarch. Steve Lawson wrote, Job was close to buying into Satan's lies. In the opening chapters of the book, the devil had said that Job would not worship God if he took away all his material prosperity. At this point, Job was in peril of crossing an imaginary theological line and embracing this mindset that the, the people of God only serve God because of what he gives them, not because of who he is. Lawson hit the nail on the head. The very thing that Satan said would happen if God allowed all Job's things to be stripped away, Job is now in peril of fulfilling what appeared to be some kind of prophecy or at least some kind of truism about humanity. He's real close. You know, we know that Job did not sin against the Lord in the way that Satan said he would, but I would like to, to just tell you that he came real close. He's on, the, he's on the fence, peering over it. He's almost got one foot on the other side. What he's, the way he's beginning to act and the things that he's saying now sound a lot like the fulfillment of Satan's own challenge. How sad. Let's go to verse 10. Therefore, hear me, you men of understanding. Far be it from God that he should do wickedness and from the Almighty that he should do wrong. Elihu exhorts the three friends to continue to listen to his words or to hear his words uh, to listen as he speaks, he calls them men of understanding again and then delivers the main burden of this portion of his speech. God does no wickedness. He, he is not a, a God who entertains or, or plays around in wickedness. The Almighty does no wrong, he says. In other words, what he means is, is that God is incapable of injustice. He cannot be unjust. He cannot do that. Just as he cannot lie, just as he cannot sin, he cannot be unjust because he is holy, because he is perfect, because he is infinite, because he is what? Immutable, unchanging. This is his point. And now in the next 13 verses, Elihu demonstrates and defends the infallibility of divine justice. I have divided this section under four main headings. Let's look at the first heading. And these are really the main points of each section here that we're going to cover. A, God's justice is based on evidence. It's based on what God collects about individuals. Evidence. Verses 11 to 15 will start at 11 through 12. Listen. For according to the work of a man, God will repay him. And according to his ways, God will make it befall him. Of a truth, God will not do wickedly, and the Almighty will not pervert justice. Job, God does the exact opposite of what you're accusing him of. Perfectly and justly, God repays a man for the work he has done. With equity, he rewards righteousness and punishes unrighteousness. Never, never, ever the opposite as Job has suggested from time to time. Thus, God brings upon a person what his conduct deserves. 
You know, we, we tend to call that karma, which is a, a, like a Buddhist term. There's no such thing. The, the better way to look at it is, is, is basically reaping what you sow. God will give back to you what you do. And that's essentially what he's saying here. Now, we just sometimes call it karma or reaping what you sow. Reaping what you sow is biblical. Karma is not. But I think they convey the same meaning. God gives to people exactly what their works, what their deeds deserve, right? He gives it right back to them. In other words, God gathers all the evidence, all the evidence, and then he gives a person what he says, quote, his ways have earned him. His ways have earned him. Now, it is unthinkable uh, to any enlightened mind that God would do wickedly and the Almighty would pervert justice. God can only do right, Elihu argues for that here. That's what he's contending for. Never would God do what is evil, since he is the source of righteousness and justice. Verses 13 to 15. Listen to what Elihu says. Who gave him charge over the earth? And who laid on him the whole world? If he should set his heart to do it, and gather to himself his spirit and his breath, all flesh would perish together, and man would return to dust. Elihu asks Job, who gave him charge over the earth? He's actually pointing this question. It's really a rhetorical question, but he's pointing it at Job. He reminded Job that Job, by the way, you're acting like God's judge by saying that you're right and God is wrong, but you're just and God is unjust. You're acting like God's judge, but who made you the judge of God? Who put you in that position? I'd like to know. Could you explain it to me? This is what he's saying here. He's saying you are not, by the way, newsflash, you are not God's judge. It's the other way around. No one had appointed Job to rule over the affairs of the world. I don't find that anywhere in the book. No one had appointed Job to that huge monumental task. But his perpetual boasting and accusations gave the impression that he had put himself in charge of the entire planet and maybe even the cosmos and the third heaven where God, God's abode is because he's been challenging God this whole time. Who put you in charge of all these things? And if it were God's intention and he had set his heart, God had set his own heart to withdraw his spirit and his breath, Elihu says... This would essentially be the end of human life. He says it like this, all flesh would perish together and man would return to dust. Yet, we know that this was not God's intention toward mankind or toward Job because Job was convinced that that's what God was going to do to him. Basically, what we see here is Elihu was jealous for God's glory as the independent sustainer of life, as the judge over all, as the one who had the power to kill or to bring to life or to bring down to shield or to raise up, 1 Samuel 2.6. These are God's rights. These are the things that God does, Job. You do not do these things. You do not determine who God is. You are not to say he's unjust. You are not to charge him with that. You are not his judge. He is your judge. This is what he's trying to teach Job here. This is, this is exactly what he's teaching here. But really the big point of the text here is that God bases what he gives to man on clear evidence, the evidence that he collects. And when he judges, nobody can challenge that because he is the only judge. That's the meaning. B, another thing about God 
God's justice is impartial. We see this in verses 16 to 22. This is a bigger section. We'll pick up at 16 and 17. He says this, Elihu says, If you have understanding, hear this, listen to what I say. Shall one who hates justice govern? Will you condemn him who is righteous and mighty? Stop. Elihu shifts his address from really kind of the three friends back onto Job, even though he's kind of bouncing back and forth. But he is talking to Job here. And this is indicated by the fact that the Hebrew words are now in the singular, not in the plural, as previously appear, as they previously appear. Elihu stated, or basically, Elihu is wanting to get Job's ear. He is saying to Job again, because I think Job is starting to drift off, because he thinks he's okay, right? When you're listening to somebody make you a point, you're like, whatever, you roll your eyes. I think that's happening, and he's essentially saying, I want you to hear me, Job. Pay attention. I'm not done speaking. Listen to what I say. He's concerned that Job's wrong attitude and bad thinking about God's justice, um, he's so concerned with those things, he is absolutely determined to correct that bad thinking. And he asks this wonderful question. Uh, it's, it's meant to be rhetorical, and the answer is, uh, is a resounding no, but he asks, shall he who hates justice govern? In other words, if, if God is not just like you're saying he's not, would he be the one that governs over all things? It makes total sense that one who is very just, that that person or God who governs over all things, that they must be just because you can't properly govern if you're unjust or if you're impartial or if you base justice on something other than evidence. This is the point that he's seeking to make here. And as I said, the answer is, is no, is no. God would not be fit to be the sovereign ruler, to be the sovereign judge over all if God actually hates justice as Job is implying that he must not be a big fan of justice because he's unjust. Addressing Job, Elihu asks, will you condemn him who is righteous and mighty? This is, a, this is a big one here. Job must have been thinking, I would never do that. I would never condemn God who is righteous and mighty. No, I wouldn't. But is that not precisely what he was doing? Is it not what he was doing? Now, the Hebrew word for condemn is rahshah. Rahshah. And it means to act wickedly. When Job accused God of injustice, right, he was condemning God, but the real meaning is, is that he was acting wickedly toward God. To charge God with the perfect, holy God with wrongdoing is to act wickedly toward God before others, if you're doing it in front of others. And that's essentially what he was doing. He is charging God. With, with, with being unjust, he's condemning God, he is acting wickedly toward God, verses 18 to 19. And we'll get into the impartiality here. Who says to a king, worthless one, and to nobles, wicked man? Who shows no partiality to princes, nor regards the rich more than the poor? For they are all the work of his hands. It's a great question that he asks. Uh, Elihu asked Job, is God not the one who calls a king worthless one and who calls nobles wicked man? Now, God doesn't do this with every king and noble, but he does to those who are wicked. And the applied answer is yes, God does sometimes call rulers like this wicked because that's exactly what they are. God calls them what they are. God returns to them 
verbally returns to them what their behavior models. You are a wicked king. God does this. God pronounces kings to be inferior and, and even impotent in a sense. They're just kind of powerless. With his all-powerful word, he removes kings and sets up kings, Daniel 2.21. He makes nations great and he destroys them. He enlarges nations and he leads them away, Job 12.23. Elihu asks Job very plainly, does God show partiality to kings? Does he not rebuke them? Does he show partiality to princes? This is a verbatim quote here. Does he regard the rich more than the poor? The implied answer in all these instances is absolutely not. No. Why? Because they are all the work of his hands. God has created everyone, so he shows no partiality to anyone. Job is under the impression that God's justice is partial because he's treating him with partial special treatment. Job is wrong. God's justice is impartial. Verses 20 to 22, in a moment they die, at midnight the people are shaken and pass away, and the mighty are taken away by no human hand, for his eyes are on the ways of man, and he sees all his steps. There is no gloom or deep darkness where evildoers may hide themselves. Elihu tells Job that powerful rulers such as kings and nobles and rich people and poor people alike, they are at times shaken at midnight, and they pass away in an instant. They die mysteriously without the aid of any human hand. It isn't murder. It isn't manslaughter. It isn't self-defense like somebody breaks in and you get killed. It is God by divine intervention taking out somebody is what he's pointing to here. Elihu's point really is that God is no respecter of persons. He deals with each type of person, whether it be a king, noble, rich man, or poor man, king, or serf, it doesn't matter. He deals with every type in the same way. Why? Because he is impartial, because he is perfectly just. Elihu tells Job that God is the all-seeing judge from whom no man's life is hidden. Now, that's a pretty scary thought. Does he not say that to him here? There's, there's no place where evildoers or where man can hide. God sees all of man's steps. Every step that, God, that man makes, God sees. In other words, his eyes are on the ways of man. He sees all his steps. Now, this truth is repeated in Proverbs 5.21. Job had also stated this truth earlier in Job 31.4. There is no, and, and here in the text it says, there is no gloom or deep darkness where evildoers may hide themselves from God. Basically, unlike Superman who can't see through lead, God sees through lead and every other metal, every other substance. There's no place to hide. There's no area where it's dark, so dark that, you know, God can't see a man. He sees everything at all times, at all times. And God sees everything all the time since God's justice is based on what he sees, on collected evidence, and since God shows zero favoritism to everyone, he doesn't treat a prince better than a, a pauper, since that is true, the conclusion we must draw toward the end here of this little section is that God's justice is totally impartial. Totally impartial. That's the point. C, God's justice is final. Verses 23 to 30. We'll look at 23 to 24. For God has no need to consider a man further that he should go before God in judgment. 
He shatters the mighty without investigation and sets others in their place. Elihu tells Job that God has no need to consider man further once he has rendered divine justice because he knows everything there is to know about that man and his works. Amen? There, there's no reason to negotiate or to discuss anything at the divine tribunal because God has collected every ounce and piece and bit and second and microsecond and millisecond of evidence. It's done. The judgment is done. He's got all everything he needs. Every thought, every word, every deed has been recorded. There is nothing missing, nothing in that man's life that is missing from the mind of God, from the eyes of God. God has it all. Divine justice is based on collected evidence. The case against a wicked man is rock solid, foolproof, 100%. And there is no fine print, no loopholes, or no clauses. God's justice is Final. There is no backpedaling. There is no begging for mercy. There is no bartering at God's tribunal. Only justice and judgment are, rent, are, are rendered, literally rendered there. That's all that comes. Elihu tells Job when God shatters the mighty, he does it without any further investigation. Why? Because he has all the evidence he needs. The case is airtight. The case is airtight. And when God, he even mentions when God replaces the mighty with someone else, like when he removes a king and puts another king in there, when he sets others in their place, there is no need for further investigation because God knows everything there is to know about the replacement. Verses 25 and 26, Thus, knowing their works, God overturns them in the night, and they are crushed. He strikes them for their wickedness in a place for all to see. Now, that's a scary text. Since God knows their works, he is able to administer perfect justice he overturns them in the night and they are crushed in other words sometimes god strikes them in the middle of the night at midnight for their wickedness sometimes he does it in plain view for all to see we often say things like well that guy died right there at the mall of natural causes well it could be that god struck him down it could be that god caused that heart to stop beating now, has God not done this in Scripture? Do we not see examples of God literally striking down the wicked or people who sin against Him in broad daylight in public? Are there not examples of this? And we would say, well, no, God would never do that. You know, we've got the New Testament view of God. He's different than the Old Testament. Same God, by the way. There's no change. Do we not have examples? How about Nadab and Abihu? Leviticus 10, 1 to 2. How about the sons of Korah, number 1632? Remember how the earth opened with fire and swallowed them up? How about Achan? Remember the dude that stole at Ai? Joshua 7, 25. What about our favorite Ananias and Sapphira? Hmm? Sapphira. It's like an Oak Ridge Boys song. It's not. I'm just kidding. Acts 5, 1 to 10. Do we not have examples of the very thing that Elihu is saying happens sometimes that God does this in justice because he has all the evidence and 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 boom it's immediate justice he just gives it to him right on the spot are there not examples of this of course there are verses 27 to 28 because they turned aside from following him and had no regard for any of his ways so that they caused the cry of the poor to come to him and God heard the cry of the afflicted stop there Elihu tells Job it's because, why does God do this to, 
to, to people? Why does God strike them down or, or judge them and, and, and exercise justice in this way? He, he, he is, he is, he's explaining why God does, this, God does this. And ultimately, he says it's because those people turn aside from following him. They have no regard for God's ways. Therefore, they receive divine justice. The wicked are judged not only for, for what they deliberately do, but for what they should do but refuse to do. God has set eternity in the hearts of men, Ecclesiastes 3.11. God has placed His law in our hearts too. We're not just talking about believers. We're talking about unbelievers as well. Romans 2.14-15, we call that the conscience. And creation itself testifies to God's invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, Romans 1.20. The combination of eternity in our hearts, law in our hearts, and the witness of creation not only directs us toward God, but beckons us to seek and follow Him. We know this to be true. Everybody knows this, but what do we as sinners do? We love our sin and we turn aside. We reject all of that witnessing, even the internal witnessing toward God. We disregard God's law, right? We, we, as he says here, we do not have any regard for his ways. We turn aside toward sin and away from God. In fact, to take it further, we trample underfoot the Son of God when we hear the gospel and reject it, and we therefore profane the blood of the covenant, Hebrews 10, 29. What Elihu is essentially saying is, is that when God acts in justice, it is perfectly deserved because of what the wicked have done and all, based on all the collected Evidence. And I would just simply add that we deserve a trillion hells for this cosmic treason. We do. A trillion hells. That's what we deserve. Even for the person who has never heard the gospel, that person also. Gospel is the good news. Talks about Jesus and how to be saved. Even for the pygmy on a remote island. Are there even pygmies? I don't know. Let's say a really small person. Let's be politically correct for half a second, then we'll go back to normal. But for the person on a deserted island who's never even heard the gospel is a wicked man because he has the law of God in his heart. He has eternity in his heart. He knows there's something beyond this life. And all of creation testifies to God's power. He is guilty as he deliberately turns aside and away from the God he knows exists. You don't have to hear the gospel to be condemned. You're already condemned. We deserve a trillion hells for this cosmic treason because we have all in a sense or have literally turned aside from following him and we have had no regard for his ways therefore god's justice is is not only accurate but well deserved amen in verse 28 elihu flips the script he warns job about the injustices that we commit job you're saying that god is unjust <laughs> we're the ones who are unjust He's describing how we disregard the poor and then cause the poor to cry to God and how God hears the cry of the afflicted. Elihu is saying, you think God is unjust? He isn't. The wicked are unjust. They mistreat the poor. Verses 29 to 30, when he is quiet, who can condemn? When he hides his face, who can behold him, whether it be a nation or a man, that a godless a godless man should not reign, that he should not ensnare the people. Elihu tells Job, if God chooses to be quiet rather than unleash his devastating word and justice on the wicked, who can condemn him for it? 
You, you can't challenge God on his timeline or when he's going to do something. You, you, you can't condemn him for not doing things according to your timeline and playbook. That's what he's saying. The obvious answer here is no one can condemn God for remaining quiet in a moment or for not bringing his justice. The fact of the matter is God does what he wants. It's his creation. He does what he wants when he wants, and no one has the right to question his sovereignty and plan. We don't have the right to do that. Elihu tells Job, God is over every nation and man. He hears the cry of everyone, whether the affliction is voiced by a single individual or an entire nation. Think of all of Israel while they're in bondage in Egypt, crying out to God and God hearing them and delivering them. In other words, no person is beyond God's all-seeing eye. No person is beyond God's all-hearing ear. God will act in perfect righteousness. He can even keep a godless man from reigning that he should not ensnare the people if he chooses. And when God wants to judge a nation, he gives the people wicked rulers. That's a John Calvin quote, and it's really good. And if you're wondering why we're where we're at in America, there it is. D, God's justice cannot be mitigated. It cannot be mitigated. Verses 31 to 33, we'll look at that whole text. He asks a question, for has anyone said to God, I have borne punishment, I will not offend anymore. Teach me what I do not see. If I have done iniquity, I will do it no more. Has anyone ever said that, he says. Will he then make repayment? Will God then make repayment to suit you because you reject it? For you must choose, and not I, therefore declare what you know. Elihu presents a couple of scenarios to Job. Suppose a man says to God, I have borne punishment, I've been punished by you, I will not offend anymore. And suppose a man requests that God, you know, teach him the iniquities he does not see so that he can do them no more. The question Elihu immediately asks is, will God accommodate the man and shape his repayment or justice to suit him? Will God modify his justice because the man doesn't like what's coming to him or what he's starting to experience because man rejects it? Will God do that for a man? Will he tailor it toward man's desires in those moments? The answer is no way, no way. God's justice will stand. God's justice cannot be mitigated because it is based on evidence. You know, when you question God about these things, you are denying the evidence that is against you. <laughs> and that's exactly what Elihu is trying to teach Job here. I think men flatter themselves by thinking they can negotiate with God, the God who knows everything about them. You know, when I go stand before him, I'll just present my case. You're acting like he doesn't know everything there is to know about you. Right? They're acting like they don't know the God who they don't know that God knows all their sins, that all those sins have been before God. Men flatter themselves by thinking they will have the opportunity to argue their case before God. Well, I know you've got a long list of sins, but check this out. What a joke. What an absolute joke. God will render his justice, and it will be well-deserved and unchanging, immutable. It cannot be mitigated. It cannot be negotiated. There's no bartering at the divine tribunal. Let's move to our last O. Elihu's objective, verses 34 to 37, we'll tackle the whole text. We're moving pretty good today. This is a huge text. I'm kind of proud of myself, but then that's a condemnable act, so I'm not proud of myself. I'm proud of the Lord. 34 to 37, somebody said amen, hallelujah. Men of understanding will say to me, and the wise man who hears me will say, 
Job speaks without knowledge. His words are without insight. Would that Job were tried to the end because he answers like wicked men? For he adds rebellion to sin, to his sin. He claps his hands among us and multiplies his words against God. Really, what we see here is a twofold objective from Elihu in this part of his speech. First, it was to persuade the men of understanding, the three friends, to agree with what he has said thus far. He is asking, do you agree with my analysis that Job speaks without knowledge and his words are without insight? Do you agree with that? Now, we see no answer from them, but I'm pretty sure they agreed with Elihu at this point. Second part of his objective was to persuade Job to repent of his pride, self-righteousness, and bad thoughts concerning God. He admonishes Job to repent in verses 36 to 37. That's essentially what he's doing. He's calling for Job to repent. It's as if he's saying, Job, you need to repent, but if you refuse to repent, you will be tried in the end because you answer like a wicked man. If you refuse to repent, you will add rebellion to your sin. Do not treat our advice with contempt by clapping your hands among us. Don't do that. And by all means, do not multiply your words against God. Stop accusing him of wrongdoing. Stop accusing him of being silent. Stop accusing him of being unjust. And there's other things that Elihu is going to defend. This is his point in 34 to 37. It is a call to repentance. See that pride, Job. See those accusations as folly and stop and stop. Stop before it's too late because God, even at midnight, could exercise justice against you and it would be well-deserved and you would be gone. That's what he's warning him. Closing. I, I have no doubt that Elihu laid out the perfect defense or a perfect defense for God's justice, didn't he? I mean, think about what he has said. And we know that this wasn't his own doing, right? He acknowledged this fact and reality himself. His wisdom came from above, from the breath of God, chapter 32, verse 8. This man is not speaking from his own pool of wisdom. He has divine wisdom imparted to him through the Spirit of God, through the breath of God. He is speaking truth. In fact, God is revealing. There is revelation here. God is revealing truth about himself in this text because the Scripture is the inspired revelation of God. He's not acting on his own. This is God-breathed wisdom coming through him. These exhortations, these warnings, this analysis, this is god speaking through Elihu. He has taught us that God is the opposite of what Job thought and suggested. Amen? God is not unjust. He is perfectly just. His justice is based on evidence. It's impartial. It's final. And it cannot be mitigated. It cannot be negotiated. The fact of the matter is this spells bad news for the wicked. Very bad news. The worst imaginable news, worse than any cancer diagnosis or anything else. That's bad news, but this is far worse news for the wicked. God is gathering His evidence against them. He is recording their thoughts, words, and deeds. God is showing them no partiality. They're not special to God. I'm going to treat this one differently than that one. That doesn't happen with God. God is showing them no partiality. He will give them exactly what they deserve, right? He will give back what their works have earned them. When they 
face divine justice, whether it come at midnight or at the end of their life after a long life, whatever it is, when they face divine justice, it will be devastating. It will be final. Final. There's no going back. Any attempt to barter with God in that moment or placate His justice will be immediately squashed because God's justice cannot be mitigated. It is final and fixed. God will, for the wicked, open the pit of hell and hurl the wicked into the abyss where the fires are never quenched and the worm that, that eats them never, ever dies. This is all imagery describing hell for the wicked. 2 Peter 2, 4 Mark 9, 48, there is no way out at that point, no return. There's no re return. Once they've been judged and received justice and cast into the abyss, there's no relief. Dives cried out for a drop of water, but he was denied. No water for you. Just have eternal, unquenchable thirst. You're in a desert forever, and you cannot have a drink. We see that in Luke 16, 19 to 31. Yes, God's perfect final justice spells bad news for the wicked. But there is also good news for the wicked. There is good news for the wicked. Christ lived a perfect life to earn the righteousness we need to enter the kingdom of heaven. 1 Corinthians 1.30, Matthew 5.20 Christ died on a cross to pay for our sins, 1 John 2, 2. God made him who knew no sin, Christ, to be sin for us, so that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. This is good news. Christ was buried in a rich man's tomb, Isaiah 53, 9, Matthew 27, 57 to 60, right? After he died and was taken off the cross, he was put in a rich man's tomb. And then what happened after being put in that tomb? Christ rose from that tomb on the third day. 1 Corinthians 15, 4. Why did he rise? What, what did he accomplish? He accomplished victory. Victory over sin. Victory over Satan. Victory over death. Victory over hell. For all who repent and trust in his finished work. That's good news. That's good news. God's justice is satisfied in Christ alone. Did you hear me? It is not ever going to be satisfied with your works and what you do. There's no amount of works or goodness that you can do to satisfy the justice of God. It is satisfied by Christ and in Christ alone. Those who repent and trust in Christ, they get mercy, not justice. They get mercy, not justice. Hallelujah. They get mercy. They get grace. They get salvation. They get hope. They get purpose. They get identity. They get it all. They don't get justice. But those who refuse to repent and trust in Christ, what do they get? They get justice, no mercy. No mercy. Do not add rebellion to your sin. Do not show contempt for the gospel by clapping your hands among us in discontent, right? And just in contempt for the gospel. Don't, don't do that. That's Elihu's exhortation, his encouragement to Job. Don't, don't, don't do that, Job. And I am saying to you as God's messenger, don't do that to the gospel. Don't do that. Do not continue to multiply your words against God. Be saved from this perverse generation. Acts 2.40, repent and trust 
in Christ now.